Please open your Bibles to the letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. Letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. And this morning's passage will be verses uh, 10 and 11. And while you're turning there, I just want to extend my, uh, my heartfelt uh, gratitude for your warm welcome and the invitation to come and minister God's word to you all this morning. And I bring you also greetings from your brothers and sisters at Second Presbyterian Church in Greenville. We have such high affinity and affection for you and for the work that your session and your pastor are doing here. And so it's a delight to be with you this morning to minister God's word. So now I would ask you to give ear to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God abides forever. Let us pray. Father in heaven, your word says that eternal life is to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And we know that we are only able to know you and to grow in our knowledge according to your word. And even then, we need the Holy Spirit to open eyes, to open ears, and then we need him to speak. Would you send us that help in this time? Send your spirit to open the eyes and ears of your dear people, and then speak through me, so that if there are any here who do not know the Lord Jesus, that they might come to know, and that the rest of us may know him more fully as we ought. We ask this in Jesus' name. And for his glory. Amen. There's an old saying, and I'm sure you know it, and likely have even said it. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And that saying was never more appropriate to speak of anyone than our Lord Jesus. I'll give one example. In the fall of 2017, the famous actor and comedian Jim Carrey was invited to speak to a group of reforming convicts. The event was hosted by an organization that was designed to provide hope and training and support to previously incarcerated men and women, allowing them to redirect their lives and become contributing members of our community. And he began this famous speech by affirming that the room that he was in was filled with the presence of God. And then this next bit is what made the speech especially popular in modern evangelical Christian circles, he said, I believe that suffering leads to salvation. In fact, he said, it's the only way. We can go through uh, suffering and we have to accept it and we have a choice to make. We can go through one of two doors, he says. He says, you can go through the door of resentment that leads to vengeance and harm, or you can go through the gate of forgiveness, which leads to grace. And this is where it really got interesting, as Jim Carrey said, just as Christ did on the cross. He suffered terribly and was broken by it to the point of doubt and feeling absolute abandonment. And then he made the decision to look down upon those who were causing that suffering with compassion and forgiveness. And so here we have a well-known public figure speaking openly about the need for grace and forgiveness and in some way connecting it to the cross of Jesus Christ. And I want to submit to you all this morning that these are the words of a man who does not 
know the Lord Jesus Christ. A man who does not know him. He has some knowledge of what Christ did, but no knowledge or understanding of who he is. And as we have said, it is not what you know, it is who you know. To the undiscerning ear, Carrie's message may sound like biblical Orthodox Christianity. And that's the point. But as the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon famously said, discernment is not the difference between knowing right and wrong. It's knowing right from almost right. You see, Carrie's point was not that Christ's death on the cross and the forgiveness he offers are the basis upon which we inherit eternal life, that we are redeemed. His point is that as we make that same choice to forgive and extend grace, we become saviors in a sense and make the world a better place. In this system, Christ is, it's not Christ's mercy towards us, but our mercy towards others that truly counts. The problem is not with telling ex-convicts to uh, be merciful. That's fine. The problem is, in Carrie's view, Jesus is merely a good example. The idea is that Christ saved the world from sin not by taking our guilt upon himself and satisfying the wrath of God. No, it's by showing us how to be nicer people. And this is a big deal because his point is, therefore, you can do the same thing. And as long as we are focused on ourselves, as long as we are focused on our works, we are not focused on Christ and we do not know him, no matter how highly we may esteem him. Christ's consciousness is, is another line in the lo- long line of heresies that would, would espouse some affinity for Jesus and what he has done, but deny the sufficiency of it, but would deny the power of it. And this is the type of system that Paul has been dealing with in Philippians chapter 3. He's dealing with the Judaizer heresy, these men who say that if you want to be saved, you must be circumcised according to the custom of Moses. So they're saying, Jesus is good, Jesus is important, we want Jesus, but you also must do this. And, and you must contribute, you must make this work, bringing their own merit to the table, as it were. And to in any way suggest that the work needed for salvation was not completed entirely, exclusively, only by the Lord Jesus, is an abomination in the mind of the Apostle Paul, and rightly so. That true righteousness, that that saving righteousness, it is not procured by what we do, but what has been done on our behalf. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that righteousness, as Paul laid out in the beginning of this chapter, is received only through faith. The question for us to think about today, then, is do you know the Lord? Do you know the Lord? Do you know Christ? Paul's chief concern for his readers is summed up in these beautiful opening words of verse 10, that I may know him. His concern is that we would take our eyes off of ourselves and that we would fix them on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Do you know him? The rock of ages cleft for you of whom we sang. Do you know him? As we think about that question, We're going to look at this passage under three headings. The meaning of knowing Christ. What are we talking about when we say knowing Christ? The means of knowing Christ. What what are our resources? What do we have to employ to know him? And the end of knowing Christ. What is the purpose of knowing Christ? So the meaning, the means, and the end. First, the meaning of knowing Christ. 
it is common and even valid to make the distinction between knowing about someone and knowing them personally. You probably all have some celebrity figure that you know a lot about. Perhaps they're a person of historical significance or a famous musician or a sports star, but somebody that you know a lot about. And you would never be so foolish as to confuse that data and those statistics with actually knowing the person. And there is a similar sense in which we want to be careful to not confuse knowing about Jesus with knowing Jesus. We, we, we don't want to settle for just knowing all of the answers to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, though I hope you do know them. We don't even want to settle for just memorizing a lot of Bible verses. For what did Jesus say to the Pharisees? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. But it is they that bear witness to me. We want to use these tools not as, a, not as an end in of themselves, but as a means to the end of knowing Christ. We want to be robust in our teaching. Because, in fact, it is our learning, it's our doctrine that that helps us to love him more, that helps us to know him better. It is, in fact, necessary that we know about a person in order to love them. Matthew Harmon writes, biblically speaking, our head knowledge of God fuels our personal knowledge of him. And we, we see this in our own relationships all the time. I have three children at home that were not able to come with me this week. I have a daughter who's six, I have a son who's four, and I have another daughter who is seven months old. And they all receive love from their father in different ways because I have to love them according to my knowledge. One of my children receives love by uh, organizing and having me attend tea parties. Another one of my children receives love and affection from me by Probably when I get home, he's going to clip my knee and try to wrestle me into submission. I will leave you to determine which one is my son and which one is my daughter. The point is, our love is expressed by what we know of them. And if that's true in our family relationships, how much more true must that be of our relationship with the Lord? And we want to know him in such a way as to be conformed to his image, to be made like him. And how do we do that? The Bible gives us wonderful counsel on this. Uh, the psalmist writes in Psalm 111, 2, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all those who delight in them. So it works this way. We, we study the works of the Lord, and we grow in our delight. And our delight presses us further back into study. And then the more we learn, the more we delight, and around and around and around it goes. I see many young children here today, and I'm so glad that you're here to, to, to worship the living and true God and to, to hear his word preached. And I hope and I'm confident that you probably know all the Old Testament Bible stories. I'm sure you know Adam and Eve and, and, and Jonah and Noah and, and Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and all of them, and, and I, I hope you do. But what I want you to hear, young children, is that you are never done studying those stories because you are never done delighting in the God whose stories they are. We, learn, we delight in his works as we study him. So that's the meaning of knowing Christ. It's, it's an intimate, personal relationship whereby we are conformed from one degree of glory to the next more and more to the image of the Son. And and we grow in that knowledge, yes, by studying the deep matters of theology. Yes, mastering your Bible and praying. That's all, those are all good means to that end. But Paul's actually going to give us two different means in this passage that maybe we wouldn't ordinarily think of. 
Paul points us to two different means in our passage. You see, just as our Lord Jesus lived a life of humiliation and exaltation, so also he is conforming us to that that same pattern of suffering and glory. And yes, he does this through the transformation worked in the renewing of our minds, but also in our life experiences. We grow in our knowledge of Christ as we are conformed to the pattern of his life. Specifically, the power of his resurrection and sharing in his sufferings. And we'll look at those in a minute. But just to kind of illustrate what I mean, personal experience does lead to a deeper knowledge of a person. My father was named Waldo Dwight Early III. And I did not know him well, and I did not know his family well. But I did find out that Waldo Dwight Early II and Waldo Dwight Early I and his father before him were all gospel ministers. And after my father passed away, I received one of my great-grandfather's Bibles, and I was thrilled to find out that he was a faithful man of God. And in reading his Bible and having his notes in there, I felt like I knew him better than if I had just heard stories about him because we shared the same vocation, because he knows what it is, like I am learning what it is to labor in the word of God to faithfully proclaim its message. And you have this kind of experience too, where you're speaking to a stranger, and in the midst of the conversation, you find out that that stranger is from the same town you are, is in the same line of work as you, went to the same school or or something like that, and that stranger is now someone you know because you have shared similar experiences with them. And so Paul is pointing us that we are to know Christ by the means of the power of his resurrection and sharing in his suffering. First of all, the power of his resurrection. Christ's resurrection is the the pinnacle, the essential truth of the Christian faith. And it's vital that we know about it for at least three reasons. First, his resurrection is the assurance that his propitiatory sacrifice, that's his sin-atoning, wrath-absorbing death on the cross, that it was actually accepted by God the Father. The Bible says that that he was raised from the dead because, because the powers of death could not hold him. The sacrifice was accepted. We know that by his resurrection. Secondly, his resurrection is our assurance of his deity. He was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness. By what? by his resurrection from the dead. And we need the deity of Christ to be true because we need him to have the authority to forgive our sins. And lastly, for our purposes this morning anyway, Jesus' resurrection is the assurance for us that he's coming back. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Well, that's a brief summary of several ways that we benefit from Christ's resurrection. But how do we know him through it? To put it another way, those are a list of facts about the resurrection that a a well-catechized child could tell you. But Paul is, is pushing for something different. He's pushing that we would know the power of the resurrection in our earthly lives. How do you know the power of the resurrection at work in your daily walk as a Christian? There's the work of justification. Justification, that great work of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all of our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight. 
Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. The Bible says that Jesus was delivered for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. And being forgiven of his sin with Bathsheba, David would would write of that blessed man in Psalm 32 whose sins are forgiven and how he moved from his bones wasting away on the inside all the day long to shouting for joy. Why? Because he had been justified. He had been forgiven of his sin. Do you know the power of Christ's resurrection in your life? As you experience that daily blessing of justification, do you know that justification that Charles Wesley taught us to sing of, my chains fell off, my heart was freed, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I'm not asking for you to know the exact moment of your conversion wherein you received that grace, but I'm asking, do you know what it's like to be convicted and burdened by your sin and to go to the Lord and remember, who is it that condemns? It is Christ Jesus who died, and more than that, who was raised. And and you feel the weight and the burden of that sin fall off your back anew. Do you know the power of the resurrection? Another way that we know the power of the resurrection is in our sanctification. That other work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man and enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Matthew Henry put this so well, he, as he often does, he wrote, the Apostle Paul was as ambitious of being sanctified as he was of being justified. He was as desirous to know the power of Christ's death and resurrection, killing sin in him and raising him up to newness of life as he was to receive the benefit of Christ's death and resurrection and his justification. To Paul, those doctrines are equally important. I think in the church today, we, we tend to put a lot more emphasis on justification, sometimes to the exclusion of sanctification. But the Bible says that the power by which we know Christ and his resurrection is both. That we know him in our sanctification, because that power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you, putting sin to death in you, Romans eight eleven tells us. Which means... There is no grounds for any Christian to say that a specific sin in their lives cannot be overcome, that it's impossible to overcome. Do not believe the lie of the world that you cannot change, for you surely can. Yes, some sins are going to be harder to overcome. That's true. And yes, some sins will plague you your whole life. But dare not blaspheme the power of Christ's resurrection by saying, it is impossible to overcome this. It is not possible. That is the very trap that Paul would spare you from, dear believer. Sure, if you tried to do it in your own strength, you will likely fail. If you confide in your own strength, that striving will be losing. But the right man is on your side the man of God's own choosing, and he is risen. And the power that raised him from the dead is at work in you, conforming you to his image, that you might die into sin and also that you might progress in holiness, that you would be seeing the fruit of the Spirit worked out in your life. Do you know that power 
of Christ's resurrection and your sanctification? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are they growing in you? Pursue them by the power of the resurrection. And it's so important that we come to know the power of the resurrection so that we might be equipped to handle well the second means that, Christ, that Paul gives us by which we may know Christ. It's in the, the rest of verse 10. And that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The word that is translated in our ESV for sharing is, is one that you may be familiar with. It's the Greek word koinonia. It's most often translated as fellowship. And so what Paul is suggesting here, what he's telling us, is that there is a sense in which the believer in Christ shares in, partakes in, fellowships in the sufferings of Christ. How is that possible? How is it possible for the Philippian Christians to share in the sufferings, to fellowship in the sufferings of a man who had died a generation earlier, roughly? How is it possible for you and me here today to share in fellowships in the sufferings of a man who has not walked this earth in, 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 in physical form in almost over 2,000 years? Almost 2,000 years. Well, notice that the suffering is, is qualified. It's his suffering. It's the suffering that belongs to him. And how, how are we to share in these things? By suffering the same things that he did and for his sake. This may be an uncommon thing for us to think about, but it's not an uncommon thought to flow from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Consider just some of these verses. We share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. 2 Corinthians 1, 5. We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 10. And even in that great glorious chapter of scripture that you all just recently, uh, Pastor John, preached through in Romans chapter 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Romans eight sixteen to 17. Now, when we hear that we're called to suffer with Christ in these terms, our minds will typically instantly go to the cross, and with good reason. Paul's going to allude to it in the rest of this verse. That's completely appropriate. But the conclusion that you might draw then is that to share in the suffering of Christ is to be a martyr. We, and, we, and we think of men like Jim Elliott, who, who was a missionary and was killed by the very people that he went to evangelize. Or we think of Hugh Latimer or Nicholas Ridley or, or Lady Jane Grey, all who were killed for their refusal to recant the faith. But surely there are Christians who die of natural causes and know at some point in their lives what it is to share in the sufferings of Christ. Surely that's true. Because Christ's sufferings, while they culminated in the cross, while that was the pinnacle of them, that was not the whole of them. Our shorter catechism summarizes Christ's humiliation this way. It consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, 
made under the law, undergoing all the miseries of this life. Christ's sufferings were from the incarnation up to the resurrection. The point in what I'm saying is we may not or we may be called to die a martyr's death. Whether or not we are is immaterial. We are all called, though, to share in the sufferings of Christ. That man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Every time, believer, that you have been uh, misunderstood by loved ones because of the teachings of Christ, you are sharing in that moment in his sufferings. The sufferings of the one whose own mother and brothers tried to get him to stop teaching because it was embarrassing to them. Every time that you've been mocked for your faith, you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ who was scorned by the very ones that he came to save. Have you ever felt abandoned, betrayed by your friends and family over fidelity to the Lord Jesus? You're sharing in his sufferings. Are you grieved by the sickness or death of a loved one? You share in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus who wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Gordon Lightfoot sums it up well. The agony of Gethsemane, no less than the agony of Calvary, will be reproduced, however faintly, in the faithful servant of Christ. To which John Calvin adds, this, however, is a sweet consolation, that in all our miseries, we are partakers of Christ if we are his members so that through afflictions the way is open for us into everlasting blessedness. The way to everlasting blessedness comes through sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Why on earth would we go through that? What, what's, what's the payoff? What's the incentive for the suffering? Do we believe that just because Calvin said it? No. We believe it because of what Paul said in verse 11. Look at it with me. That by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Many think that this verse is Paul's expression of doubt over whether or not he will attain it. That is surely false. He's not speaking in terms of, of doubt or, or desperation to secure his eternity. He's, he's speaking in terms of determination to enter into it. Sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. It's, it's all worth it so far as it's a means to the end that I might attain the resurrection of the dead. As Calvin puts it again, the phrase, if by any means, does not indicate doubt, but expresses difficulty with a view to stimulate our, our earnest endeavor. You see, in, in Christ, Paul had found the pearl of great price, and he was willing to sell anything. In fact, he was willing to sell everything that he might attain it. Not only that he might be saved, but that he might dwell with him forever. Salvation in Christ through faith is a glorious thing. It is a necessary thing. Walking with him in humble obedience and newness of life is a good and necessary thing. Experiencing the power of his resurrection in our daily lives and sharing in the sufferings, that's all good. But what Paul is saying in verse 11 is that those are all means to the end 
that we might attain the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from the dead, that's, that's eschatological language. And please don't let that turn you off because it, it represents something glorious. It, it represents the beginnings of the new heaven and the new earth when God himself will be with us and we will be with him as his people. Matthew Henry calls the resurrection from the dead the happiness of heaven. We are so often concerned with the here and now as we should be, but we tend to be concerned with the here and now to the exclusion of the there and then, of the new heavens and the new earth. And, and what I mean is, we, we tend to be so focused on some particular doctrine, some particular aspect of our faith, that we, we, we can see the resurrection and, and the new heavens and the new earth as, as something of a, a cherry on top. I think it was Dr. Gaffin that said, the controlling focus of Paul's theology was eschatology. And a careful study of Philippians will reveal that to you. To him, it was, it was both simple and practical. It was the motivating factor behind all things. Christ will return. He will make all things new. And because that's true, we are to remain faithful until he does. Paul has experienced that restoration. He wrote of it in the beginning of the chapter. He has gained Christ, and in it received that righteousness that comes through faith. And now he looks forward to the consummation of all things. Because at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory will be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed. Perfectly blessed. Entering into the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. Dear child of God, this is your inheritance. Do you believe that? Do you long for that? Do you hope for it? I, I hope that you do. I, I don't know how anyone would make it through life in a fallen world without this hope of the resurrection from the dead. Are you broken hearted by the sin and the pride that have utterly taken over our culture? Are you broken hearted at the loss of a loved one? Are you exhausted by this, this life of sin and death in general? Do you long to see Jesus on well, the day of resurrection? You will. And you will experience life in a world where no unclean thing will ever be allowed to enter in again. And you will walk once more with your loved ones who died in the Lord. And you will see Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And this raises one final question. In Paul's desperation to attain this resurrection from the dead, we have seen the positive motivation for why he would want it. But what awaits those who will not attain the resurrection from the dead? They too will be raised, but not in glory. Our larger catechism summarizes the Bible's teaching this way. At the day of judgment, the wicked shall be set on Christ's left hand, and upon clear evidence and full conviction of their own consciences, they're going to know this is the right sentence. They shall have their fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them, and thereupon shall be cast out 
from the favorable presence of God and the glorious fellowship with Christ, his saints, and all his holy angels into hell to be punished with unspeakable torments, both of body and soul forever. So as we conclude, I want to tell you, you will stand before that judge one day. And the difference between blessedness and torment will not be what you know. It will be who you know. The difference between everlasting joy and everlasting suffering will not be whether or not you were a relatively nicer guy than the next, whether or not you extended more mercy than the next. No, it will be whether or not you know Christ and the power of his resurrection. It will be whether or not you know Christ and have shared in his sufferings. Do you know him? If you do, on that day, you will enter into the joy of your master, which has no end. Amen. Let us pray. God in heaven, we give thanks to you for your word and how it reveals Christ to us. And I pray, Lord, that we would be those who could say with confidence, I know him. And Lord, if there's any here or somehow otherwise under the sound of my voice that do not know the Lord, that they would come to and in him find eternal life. We ask it in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.